0: declining birth rates in Xinjiang.
1: Basically, as that crackdown started, they stopped publishing that data. So we, I tried to look for other ways to sort of answer that research question of how much of this decline is driven by coercive policies in um, Uyghur communities and other Indigenous communities.
2: A roadmap to net zero by
0: 2050.
2: IAEA, a very conservative organisation, was often really just kind of I lobbied for the status quo on on fossil fuels um, for a very long time, so it's significant that this agency is now saying, look, this is actually code red time.
0: Cyber attack disrupts US fuel pipeline.
3: US government comes out very strongly, we're going to respond. Within a few days, Darkside then says that our servers have been taken offline.
0: This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast, with me... Olivia Nelson. Recently, ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre released a new report, which found that birth rates in Uyghur-majority areas in Xinjiang have fallen by unprecedented amounts since 2017. Danielle Cave speaks to report authors Dr James Leibold and Nathan Russe about the government policies behind this birth rate drop and the report's key findings.
4: Thanks to everyone for joining us today, Uh, my name is Danielle Cave and I'm the Deputy of our International Cyber Centre at ASPE and as well as cyber we focus on topics including technology, disinformation, foreign interference, we do a fair bit of China and the rest of the Indo-Pacific region and we also focus on human rights issues, particularly things like surveillance and supply chains. Within our centre, we have a small but globally impactful uh, Xinjiang-focused team that we stood up a little over a year ago, and that team will run until about October this year or so. It's predominantly funded by the US State Department and also through UK FCO grants that we were awarded last year. Their latest report by our big data and geospatial specialist, Nathan Rusa, and by Dr. James Leobold, who is our Xinjiang specialist who we share with La Trobe University, and James also runs our small Xinjiang team, is titled Family Deplanning, the coercive campaign to drive down Indigenous birth rates in Xinjiang. We launched this last week via an exclusive with the Associated Press, uh, and separate to that media reporting, it's received a lot of global media attention, both from policymakers, governments and politicians, uh, and from other media like the Washington Post, Reuters, Guardian and others over the last week. Nathan, can you talk us through this research and explain to us how you came up with this project idea that involves pulling and splicing um, huge data sets that you and James built from Chinese government data?
1: Yeah, so thank you for all of that. So basically the start of this project was when China released its 2020 statistical yearbook. And I think that was in about February, in sort of mid to late February. And what that showed was that What we saw in 2018 in Xinjiang was a precipitous decline in the birth rate, and we saw that had continued into 2019, so that by now the birth rate had basically halved in two years. So then following that, it sort of was natural to go looking into more detailed data. For example, Xinjiang is a region of China that's about 60% Indigenous, about 40% Han, and so we wanted to see the differences because it's the Indigenous communities and predominantly the Uyghur community that has been um, affected by this crackdown. And we wanted to see if the the drivers of this birth rate decline was the indigenous communities or the Han communities. And what we actually found was that China had stopped publishing that data in 2016. They used to sort of separate their birth rate statistic data um, by geographical region and also by, um, they call them ethnic minorities and, or ethnic nationalities, sorry, and the Han community in Xinjiang. And basically, as that crackdown started, they stopped publishing that data. So we, I tried to look for other ways to sort of answer that research question of how much of this decline is driven by coercive policies in um, Uyghur communities and other Indigenous communities. And so what we ended up doing was just looking at it in a geographical sense. So across all the counties in Xinjiang, we'll basically see that they range from about 4% Uyghur to over 99% Uyghur. And we could sort of use that as a gradient where we could sort of work out the relationship between the birth rate decline and the Indigenous percentages of population in each area. And sort of start to see this very striking correlation between the areas that were Uyghur majority and an intense decline in the birth rate.
4: Thanks, Nathan. James, I'll ask you to jump in here and elaborate on any of Nathan's points or other findings that you think are important from your perspective as an expert who's been working on these topics sort of your entire career.
5: Yeah, uh, Thank you, Daniel. Likewise, I was really excited when Nathan kind of uh, pitched this idea. And when I got a sense of the data set that he had built, because I've long been interested in uh, demographic policy and changes in Xinjiang, I think one of the points that's really important to make is to put this in a kind of wider context of the shift in China from the one child policy, which was implemented in 1979. And then the shift to a two child policy in 2016. And now discussion about a kind of looming demographic crisis uh, China-wide with the kind of average fertility rate now at uh, 1.3 births per woman, which is below the replacement level. So at at the same time that China is concerned about its declining fertility rate, it launches uh, in 2007 uh, a highly coercive campaign against illegal births uh, in Xinjiang. And as Nathan pointed out, we're able... Uh, through the data set to demonstrate how that campaign was particularly targeted at indigenous uh, communities in southern Xinjiang, but elsewhere as well. And then we also brought to bear quite a few uh, Chinese government policy documents to flesh out the nature uh, of that campaign and, and look at the kind of toolkit of coercion that officials used to drive down indigenous birth rates. And this includes things like hefty fines, uh, disciplinary punishment, as well as internment or even the, the threat of internment. Um, so uh, leaked documents uh, from Xinjiang show that the chief reason for a woman to be interned extrajudicially was having births above and beyond uh, family planning quotas.
4: Let me put this to you, James, but Nathan, please chime in in the end as well. Was it difficult pulling together this combination of enormous databases that, Nathan, and I just constantly saw on your desktop, but making sure that those databases were teamed up with all of the official Chinese language documents?
5: I don't think it was as hard as I thought it was going to be, Danielle. I mean, we know that the Chinese government is uh, really increasing its uh, regime of censorship. We've been using a whole range of tools to kind of circumvent that. You know, I was kind of surprised about the amount of information we could find. I, I should also point out it was a real collaborative effort with uh, other Xinjiang scholars like Darren Byler Block- and Tim Gross uh, sharing resources as well. And I think when you marry up the policy documents that we've undercover with uh, the data set that Nathan built based on uh, Xinjiang government statistics, we're able to, I think, provide a pretty convincing picture of what was happening uh, back in 2017 and 18 and its result going forward. Of course, as Nathan pointed out, and maybe you could talk a little bit about this, the fact that they're no longer publishing this birthright data means that we'll probably never know for sure the full impact of this
1: campaign. Yeah, I think it's sort of, it's impossible to really build a coherent understanding based on just the data or just the document sourcing that we're able to do. And I think it really needs to combine them both to sort of build this idea of what's happening. Because, and I think, I think that's actually one of the things that the Chinese official narrative has been trying to do, has been saying, yes, we admit there's this decline in birth rate. That's because we have, and in the, this is in the words of one of the, one of the Chinese consulates in the US, liberated Uyghur women to stop them from becoming baby-making machines. But basically, then their narrative goes to say that this birth rate decline is a natural response to the increased investment. And although the data shows that it's an unprecedented decline, both in China and globally in recent history, The the source documentation and the narrative behind it was built by these documents that we found that showed the very coercive nature and the very unflinching nature of punishment for people that exceed these increasingly strict family planning guidelines. So I think both were definitely necessary.
4: It's quite incredible watching the different sort of small China teams we have now working on China. Things have changed so quickly over the last few years because these online resources and these online databases do disappear really quickly so it's interesting you find something and members of the team find things and you know we save them online we save them in PDFs we save them in different folders and we're at the point where we basically you know we don't even like to work you know on email that often we sort of keep things off email for as long as possible often until the day of the launch and we don't even like sending embargoed reports over email so it's it's fascinating watching both the censorship of resources and, the, and then the operational security that is now involved in some of these, I suppose, sensitive projects. James, can I, we're running out of time here, so let me finish off by asking you, what is it like teaming up with someone like Nathan, who is not a long-term Chinese and young specialist but obviously brings this very uh, set of unique Ausent skills to the table. I mean, watching the two of you work together is fantastic and you both have such different strengths that you can complement each other. So so what is it like from your perspective?
5: Yeah, it's a great question. It's a, exhilarating and keeps um, me youthful, if, if not tires me out. I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, Nathan has skills that... Uh, I couldn't dream of uh, possessing. I can bring other, you know, maybe 20-odd years of trying to study uh, the Chinese language and the Chinese political setting uh, to bear, but without the technical skills that Nathan has, I really wouldn't be able to have done uh, this type of research. And so it's like combining some, you know, two different complementary skill sets, you know, you can accomplish something uh, that a single individual couldn't do. There's also just the beauty of working in a team, you know, like the EPIC team, where you've got a whole range of people that interrogate your work, ask difficult questions, bring the sources to bear. A single academic uh, or researcher just simply couldn't do it without that kind of collaborative process. And one of the parts I'm most proud of is, you know, helping to build the next generation's skill set as it relates to studying China. I mean, we have a real kind of skills deficit, I believe, in Australia. Um, and it's really important that we invest in um, skilling up the next generation. And just as I, I like to hope I've contributed a bit of that, at the same time, uh, people like Nathan and Vicky Shu and Alex Josky have taught me plenty of new tricks as well.
4: But that's a perfect place to end on, I think. And it's, I think it's a testament to the work that we now get so many requests for China, Ausint research training, and a lot of different governments um departments and agencies and businesses uh, wanting to understand how we do the work and I think what's so key to all that is it, it is teamwork and it is pairing up so many different people with with different skills um, we'll leave it there but but please jump on our website you'll see um, James and Nathan's report on our homepage. look it's not a short report uh, but it's a fantastic one at least um, read through the first few pages uh, and thank you for joining us. Have a good week, everyone. And thanks, James and Nathan.
1: Thank, thank you so Steve. much.
0: The International Energy Agency has released a new report, Net Zero by 2050, A roadmap for the global energy sector. The report highlights that the need for transitioning to a net zero system by 2050 has become a new necessity. Anastasia Kapetis and Dr Robert Glasser discuss the report's findings and what this means for the international energy sector.
6: Hello, Anastasia. Thanks for joining me in this discussion about this really interesting new International Energy Agency report.
2: Pleasure, Robert. Always love to have a chat about climate and security and uh, and how things are so rapidly evolving in this space.
6: Yeah, it's really interesting when you see whole sectors now beginning to uh, react to the climate threat uh, in terms of both financial disclosure and in other respects. And this new report from IEA is is an example of that transition that's happening now in the energy sector. Maybe it'd be good to describe a bit about it and then we can talk about some of the consequences. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And what this report says um, is that there is a very, very narrow pathway um, to get to uh, net zero by 2050. It's saying to countries and banks and investors who have made 2050 net zero commitments, okay, you've done that, but this is what that means. And what that means for this, uh, for the IEA is that no new investments in fossil fuels. So they're basically saying, yep, you can keep on um, firing your, the assets that you have, but any new investment means we go over our carbon budget and net zero at 50 is no longer possible.
6: So we need to talk about that. That's really fundamental. That is a huge challenge globally, of course. But just to provide a little of the historical context, we do have, we did have a report that was produced by the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change about two years ago, uh, which tried to answer the question: Is it possible to keep the warming to yeah. one point five degrees? And the report concluded that it was conceivably possible, but extremely difficult, and it said it would require actually pulling carbon out of the atmosphere as well as uh, massive changes in the energy sector. But these, this wasn't the International Energy Agency no. making this uh, yeah. with this report. So they have great credibility in this area, don't they?
2: Well, they do have great credibility in certain sectors. So in the past, they've often been accused of being too close to the fossil fuel uh, industries. But for the fossil fuel industries, they've been a, you know, a credible partner on, on energy security and energy issues in, uh, in, the, in the global energy market. So um, it's notable this particular report, as per usual, went through review by, you know, companies like Shell, uh, like some of the big, glo- and the other big um, oil majors. So again, IAEA, a very conservative organisation, has often really just kind of lobbied for the status quo on, on fossil fuels um, for a very long time. So it's significant that this agency is now saying, look, this is actually code red time.
6: Yeah, and they've also actually, uh, in their estimates of how rapidly renewables would take off, they have wildly underestimated, as has most <laughs> experts on this. Yeah. So, yeah. So how are they saying it's possible to achieve this, achieve such a massive reduction in fossil fuels, you know, going basically from four-fifths of the total energy supply to one-fifth by 2050? How, how is it possible to achieve that?
2: So I'm actually not sure what the report says in terms of individual pathways. Do do they make mention of individual pathways?
6: I think they, well fundamentally I think they talk about the scale of the new investment in solar that's required. Photovoltaics need to reach 630 gigawatts by 2030 and wind power 390 gigawatts. Just they also describe what the scale of that what those numbers mean because those are big numbers yeah, what, yeah, but but this is like? four times the record level set in 2020 this is kind of an annual addition yeah. that's required and for solar pv it's equal to installing the world's current largest solar park roughly every day so this is an enormous Challenge.
2: It is an enormous challenge, and it needs money, <laughs> uh, a lot of money. So maybe that's a good way to think about: will this particular report send a strong enough signal to markets, to investors?
6: And that's where organisations like BlackRock exactly come into right. the picture
2: um, to do even more to channel money away, investment away from fossil fuels and um, and into renewables.
6: And there is an answer to that question. BlackRock's been very active in this space. I know a couple of years ago, they were detecting, already detecting, major climate change impacts in the value of their investments, including evidence that our most climate resilient utilities, for example, will trade at a premium. And they've begun advising, even a couple of years ago now, its investors that that premium is going to increase over time as the climate uh, dangers increase.
2: That's right, and, and famously last year, uh, Larry Fink, um, who has been, oh, you know, uh, pretty agnostic on climate change um, in his public pronouncements, suddenly said that BlackRock, in terms of its managed investments, was going to divest from climate change. Uh, and that he said that he predicted that climate change would completely reshape the nature of global finance.
6: Now, that's interesting because BlackRock has been criticised pretty consistently by environmental activists for not taking a stand on climate and for being, as you said, the largest asset manager in the world with many assets sunk in fossil fuel uh, industries.
2: No, exactly right. So BlackRock has been uh, funding all sorts of fossil fuels from Shenhua to China National Coal Group to Yang Coal Australia to Whitehaven to Glencore. So some analysis by IEFA looks at what does that mean for these companies in terms of um, BlackRock's now kind of stated policy. Um, a lot of these companies just don't make the cut at all. So they're losing that you know particular um, stream of investment so that's pretty significant given that you know the Im- the amount of assets that BlackRock controls.
6: Yep, and so I guess we can assume that as their algorithms which they use to determine what to say to their investors begin detecting the climate signal as the climate continues to warm, then that will accelerate this transition just because of market forces leaving aside the politics of climate change away from assets that are either embedded in fossil fuels, kind of this transition risk, and away from assets that are exposed to climate hazards like sea level rise or cyclone risk.
2: Yes, I think that's true. I think um, some uh, people who are involved in looking at financial mechanisms to accelerate the move from investors away from fossil fuels have been looking at things like different types of algorithms that give investors current price signals rather than a lot of the algorithms which look at like long historical periods of price signals and then use to extrapolate those into a future scenario, which, of course, for climate is less useful.
6: So can I shift gears a bit and talk about the consequences of this transformation that's happening? Because I guess implicit in this... Is, first of all, it's a bold challenge that IEA is setting down in writing in this report. Secondly, there's reason for optimism that the transition will happen faster because, just primarily because it's profitable actually to make the change to renewables and with big asset managers like BlackRock. So if we take a moment and think about the geopolitical implications of this amazing transformation, assuming we can achieve it uh, in the timeline uh, that uh, IEA has identified. Do you want to spend some time talking about what is this going to mean globally for countries that in the short term have been relying on renewable uh, or on fossil fuels for their income? There are others that are now probably rising and have big opportunities with renewables.
2: So I think the first place to start is to look at how people are thinking about the stranded asset risk to the global financial system. Um, So again, a conservative estimate from the bank of England says that there are 20 trillion uh, assets at risk from being stranded. Um, huge amount. Which is a huge amount. Again, that's probably conservative because it doesn't take into account all the industries that rely on fossil fuels, um, whether it be, you know, car makers who haven't switched to um, to electric cars, whether that be energy, other other sorts of downstream energy companies. Um, you know, the list goes on. The risk is hugely there, but the cascading effect of stranded assets finally being priced into the market and essentially being kicked out of market value is potentially huge and we haven't really thought enough about the risk to the global financial system really to that and don't forget this is an era where the global financial system is running on debt it's it's running on quantitative easing Um, it's running a you know A lot of public infrastructure spending. So there's already structural weaknesses um, in the financial system. Essentially, it hasn't recovered from 2008 in a meaningful way. So it's weakened. So what that does is interesting.
6: It's profound on a whole variety of levels, the global geopolitics and how the energy, this transition will alter and affect global politics, geopolitics. But it also operates at different levels, like we have now the UK Defence Ministry talking about moving away from fossil fuels in their defence platforms to renewables. We have the US exploring that now. This will be an issue for Australia as well as we go forward with this uh, energy transformation.
2: Um, I think so. I think that's inevitable. I mean, uh, for a lot of defense assets, transitioning to renewables makes so much sense in terms of securing uh, energy supply lines. It makes sense uh, in terms of cost, absolutely. Of course, there are some defense assets uh, like big planes and stuff that really can't can't use renewables. Uh, that technology doesn't exist yet. But for a lot of its basing and, and transport assets, absolutely that can happen um, and that will be happening. Right now, defence industries are still playing catch-up. They're not postured to supply uh, a lot of renewable technology directly, but that will change uh, and new new defence players will come in. But I think the other thing, of course, is that for countries that depend so much on fossil fuels for their national revenues, that is... Obviously, the big question: what, what does Russia do? What does Saudi Arabia do? What does Malaysia do? What does Indonesia do? Uh, what does what does India do?
6: What does Australia do? And what does Australia uh, do? You, right. Yeah, the I guess one of the implications of this transition is that ultimately investments in new fossil fuel energy production will require more and more public subsidies because the market forces won't enable that financing to happen whether it's BlackRock or others moving their investments elsewhere.
2: I think that's already become so clear on the Australian fossil fuel landscape. Uh, it's been a couple of years now since the banks have said that they, you know, they won't fund new coal projects. And we've seen a lot more investment by the public purse in fossil fuel projects just this week, 600 million in the budget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. by but the Morrison government on on that score. So again, when Countries do this a lot. They use a lot of their public revenue to prop up industries that the market doesn't like anymore. That affects their bonds. Their you know their bond issuing ability, their bond price. Um, so that's another issue for countries to you know to really consider.
6: Yep, I think so as well. And I know Moody's is already factoring climate shocks into its. Uh analysis of municipal bonds as an example of that and of course nationally at a national level that will affect credit ratings as well. So we're in the midst of this amazing energy transformation and if energy transforms it will transform everything with it. It's going to be a very exciting time ahead. Thanks a lot Anastasia for this interesting discussion.
0: Thanks Robert. On the 7th of May, a US major fuel pipeline operator, Colonial Pipeline, was the victim of one of the most disruptive cyber attacks on record, by cyber criminal hacking group Darkside. Tom Uren and Dr. John Coyne discussed the fallout from the ransomware hit, what it means for international law enforcement, and the impact of this on the regulation of cryptocurrency.
3: G'day John, I hear you're grumpy today. (laughs) I am unfortunately, Tom,
7: it's been a long day.
3: (laughs) Yeah, well, we're going to talk about ransomware. so. This is no doubt going to brighten up your day. Um, I'll explain what happened with the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack, and then we'll talk about some of the proposed solutions. So basically within a week, a pipeline, a very significant pipeline in the States that carries diesel, petrol, gasoline, jet fuel from Houston to New York, their IT system was ransomware. And the IT system is the stuff that people send emails on Bills. Uh, It's not actually the stuff that runs the pipeline, which is known as OT or operational technology. First of all, they stole a heap of data and then they locked up the IT system by encrypting it. Uh, Apparently, it's now come out that within the day, the CEO had decided that he was going to pay the ransom. They negotiated. Like, really quickly, down to $5 million, which I think is, I think this pipeline provides something like 65% of the fuel to the east coast of the US. And then there's this long period of what's happening. Um, the pipeline wasn't running. It, and within a week, it's restarted. Now, the group is called Dark Side, and they run ransomware as a service. So they build the tools, they run some uh, payment servers. And they get their, air quotes, affiliates to actually conduct the operations. And Darkside takes something like a 20 to 30% cut. So in that month, they also got a ransom from a, a German-based chemical company for $4 million. So $9 million just in the month, and that's by like the middle of the month. <laughs> so <laughs> they're doing not bad. Now, they got some heat because of the pipeline hack. And they, they, they actually pub- published on their website... You know, we don't want to destroy the society. We just want to, you know, ethically steal money from or extort money from people. They said they're going to vet their targets, so they're actually going to see who people are going to hack, and then I guess the idea was presumably stop them. US government comes out very strongly. We're going to respond. Uh, within a few days, DarkSide then says that our servers have been taken offline, and now the belief is that they just stole all the money <laughs> that was, was going to be they were going to get a cut off cut off and they've just taken it all and and claimed that it was because their servers had been stolen so within a week we've gone from you know major pipeline hack worries about fuel and energy security in the u.s to the ransomware group just absconding with Uh, And the the figure I've heard is $30 million in a a Bitcoin account. So, presumably, my my working hypothesis is they're going to reform, rebrand. That seems like pretty good money. If you can spin up a business, we first heard of them in August 2020. So, you know, within just over half a year, they've kind of spun it up into tens of millions of dollars. Now, there's some, many different groups have been working on what to do about ransomware. It's getting a bigger and bigger problem. I thought we'd talk through some of the possible suggested ideas. So in the States, there's the Ransomware Task Force, and they've got a list of recommendations. I thought we could talk about a couple of them. Coordinated international diplomatic and law enforcement efforts, and a sustained whole-of-government intelligence-driven anti-ransomware campaign, and the cryptocurrency sector that enables ransomware crime should be more closely regulated. So There's many other recommendations. I thought those were three that we in particular could tackle. Do any of those really strike you as particularly interesting? Like what's, what's the thing that leaps out? Well, actually, you know what leaps out?
7: There is no honour among thieves. Mm. Secondly, what really leaps out is that even those involved think that this is a victimless crime and they're very keen and proactive and this should be the message for us to say they're not there to do harm. And there's some good reasons for that. So in most jurisdictions in terms of – now we're talking law enforcement. In most jurisdictions, um, priority is given to – Criminal offences that cause harm, mm. so crimes against the offender. So you know the worst of them, you know murder, etc., um, robbery, etc. So, um, so from one aspect, what we see in terms of that law enforcement piece is these guys are deliberately trying to minimise the harm, and it all depends on how. Well, well minimise
3: the it. appearance of harm. Oh,
7: right. I think the appearance of harm. So that way, it makes it harder, and this is where it gets easy. It makes it harder for organised crime um, to be uh, given a priority by local law enforcement. So, you know, if, if you're sort of sitting there looking at it that way... One of the
3: interesting things clever tactic. about this group is that part of their vetting procedure is that you can't conduct operations in Eastern Europe and you must speak Russian. So the US government came out and said, we believe these are Russians. The Russian government is not responsible, but the Russian government has some part to play in enforcing laws. So you're talking about deliberately trying to play the game in a way that avoids Russian law enforcement? Look, I think so, and in particular. So
7: um, there can be no doubt that Russia is a permissive state in terms of, um, of cybercrime. And the message we're picking up in the byline of that, so between the lines, is really that, okay? the Russian authorities are permissive and they'll remain permissive unless, of course, you start stealing off the Russian authorities, which will then see you become a domestic problem. Mm. Um, And I I think this is an interesting take on it. So, you know, the, the question for law enforcement and diplomacy and cooperation is how far can you get when the physical location of those involved is in a jurisdiction that you can't touch? Um, and that's going to make it really hard.
3: Do you think there's anything that the US government can do to encourage Russian law enforcement? What are the, what are the options there? look I I don't think so the real
7: issue and the real issue is when it becomes a problem for the Russian authorities they will cooperate and I think this is what we've seen historically with issues like drugs is that when it starts becoming a domestic problem uh, what you see is a change in, in a government approach so you know I think we can implore through diplomatic uh, mechanisms and levers, we can implore greater cooperation from the Russians, but I don't expect that's the case, and I know that's a really pessimistic answer.
3: Yeah, I guess there's always the possibility that this just encourages the, the, the cybercriminals to be just a bit more careful. Like if it becomes an international incident, then it's relatively easy for the Russian government, I think, to just arrest a couple of them. Or maybe even arrest a couple of innocent people. <laughs> Throw them over the fence. Well, and... I
7: think that's the case. So, you know, this is the thing we need to be careful of as well, which is the name of the game here is is preventing and you know, I'm reminded is preventing the offence from occurring and making sure that the perceived risk from the criminal's perspective is really of getting caught is really high Mm. Um, now the challenge we have so let's look at a comparable offense so let's look at um kidnap and ransom okay as a general rule most countries including australia say we do not pay ransom so that's number one way of keeping keeping people from doing kidnap and ransoming of australian citizens uh, number two, though, some companies in the private sector still do. So we still see pockets of kidnap and ransom, so, you know, some very, very large. But we get a lot of cooperation on, as a general rule, and, and including in some really remote um, countries in Africa and South yeah. America, et cetera. So, um, you know, from that perspective, we see some cooperation, but also
3: because it deals with bad press. Yeah. Um, it's bad for business.
7: It is bad for business. And yeah. I think this is where the interesting part about it is. So, you know... I think the question we should be asking ourselves is all about uh, risk. So, for instance, arresting a few, a few hackers in Russia by Russian authorities uh, might placate a few people in the West. It might make us feel a little bit comfortable and sleep in our beds a little bit um, tighter at night and warmer at night. But I don't think it makes a lasting change.
3: Yeah. Um, it feels like a tactical victory rather than oh, oh, look, winning I think the war. So. Yeah. And
7: I think so. And I think, you know... To me, though, um, the two parts of the crime, you know, the first one is the predicate offence of what you're actually doing. Okay, the second one is getting your money. So this yeah. is where I think there's, in terms of international law enforcement, um, doing more work around. Uh, cryptocurrencies Uh, and you know it's it's one of those tough ones cryptocurrencies were invented so so that they're untraceable um really the security of them is important Uh, but i think that that that's a key battleground in addressing um if you can't get away with your illicit funds and if you're pursued for your illicit funds that makes the crime you know that famous saying you know the crime juice has got to be worth a squeeze um right if you can make and change that um yeah, I think that, that you've got a good chance of, of, of reducing the impact of
3: cybercrime. So I think uh, my understanding is Australia's got cryptocurrency know-your-customer laws for exchanges. Is that right? Um, yeah, look,
7: it does. But I think it's we're still in our early days of trying to work out online. And I think these are uh, the challenge is, is that um, the cryptocurrencies, for the most part, operate outside of the traditional finance sector. Yep. Um, and they were themselves, as I was saying earlier, you know, deliberately developed to obscure the transfer of money. So uh, I think it's going to take us a while to get a regime together. and
3: Globally, right? Because there's globally. no point just Australia.
7: No, that's right. And I think in terms of that regime, though, I think we need to look at this differently. So... Um, the thought is is that you can make cryptocurrency the same as you do other types of financial compliance. I just wonder if because of the technology ways, you need a paradigm shift, like a separate system. And now I don't know what that quite looks like, but for me, I think that you know I wonder you know is applying the know your customer and anti money laundering procedures and policies and that we have say for banking in Australia. And other financial institutions is applying that to cryptocurrency the same, does it actually work? And I, I. I the jury's out, and uh, uh, but me personally, I, I don't think you can. And again, mm-hmm. to reiterate that, I think that's why we need to look at it. Um, and you know, we're not drumming up work for our own centre or anything else like that. But you know, that's why I think there's some really important discussions to be had here around this.
3: Yeah, it seems like you can have quite a good know your customer regime in many countries, and still have vast gaping holes.
7: Oh, look, and, and you know, and the other thing too is even in um, I should have added that know your own customer, even in the general finance sector, the expectation now is that you'll know your customer's customer. Right. Um, and I just wonder where... So that's the general finance sector. So yeah, you can know your customer, but do you know who their customers are? Do you know where their money's coming mm. from, et cetera? And I think this is part of that, that challenge. And again, you know, like... The very fact that cryptocurrency can be moved globally so quickly and anonymously—that's in, in, in almost impossible, really, to track. I think that's the the challenge for law enforcement and policymakers and lawmakers. And you know, there's a little bit of—I I know you want a clear cut answer, like most people do. You know, it, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and we have ourselves a perfect cocktail mix of responses. But I'm not sure we've worked that out yet. You know, mm. the right mix between. Right. Um, so it seems like.
3: Seems like that, that recommendation gets mixed marks from you. <laughs> then the final one we, sh- we should talk about is an intelligence-driven anti-ransomware campaign. So my, my impression from my time in government is that crime in the national security community was not a super high priority. And I wonder, will this make things change
7: um, look, you know what, money buys you a, a lot of attention, and I think this is one of the things that we we can say. You know, when, when you're talking about the volumes involved in this...
3: Uh, and you know, also, like, energy security. Well, that's... Like, I mean. that's a whole different ballgame, isn't it?
7: And I think... I, look, I do think it's a case, and I think that... If we look over the last 18 months of, with COVID-19, what we see is an increased um, understanding and interest in national resilience. So this is what we saw take place with this attack is an attack on national resilience. So, yeah, look, I think it slightly changes, changes the equation. And I think the volumes of money involved... Um, it's tough. So globally, financial institutions and the private sector have a habit of not recording losses in terms of fraud and corruption for a variety of reasons and very good reasons. Um, the tough thing here is is that I think that a lot of companies still pay ransomware. They pay the ransom to get back their access back to their data. Yeah, I've heard so about
3: 30%. Yep, well we need to yeah. understand
7: that 30% and we need to understand the other 70% as, as well. Yeah, so yeah, the yeah. people who don't pay and the people who do pay to get a full picture. Um doing that and getting the private sector to be part of that would be tough.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's not seems- impossible.
7: And you know like there's there's different models that could be applied to this, you know, you could take a you do a, a voluntary compliance scheme and reporting scheme that could pull together globally the figures on this. Certainly. You know like like all tough problems. There's no there's no simple solution to it.
3: Yeah, I've heard, interestingly, that companies will talk to the official bodies, but as soon as they decide to pay the ransom, they stop talking. (laughs) So, So you have this irony that the companies that you're interested in learning most about become silent. Anyway, thanks, John. Always fun, mate.
0: That's all we have time for this week on Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode next week.